Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. So nice to be back. So nice to see so many familiar faces and new faces. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, on behalf of the Seaboyd and Gray Center and my new co-director, Jen Mascott, more about her soon, uh, it's a real pleasure to be back with everybody, especially on this occasion, the 75th anniversary of the Administrative Procedure Act's enactment. When the APA was enacted 75 years ago, it culminated one conversation and commenced many others. After decades of debating what new laws should be mapped on to the administrative state as it existed at the time, we've now spent 75 years debating how those words and that law should be interpreted and applied in light of what Congress intended and in light of the constitutional structure that surrounds all of it. And so this conference will have two panels focused on both of those questions. What did Congress intend in 1946? And what have we learned since then with an eye to what we ought to learn uh, going forward? Um, now, in case you haven't already seen, there are copies of the George Mason Law Review on the back table. This is our third annual uh, symposium conference with the George Mason Law Review. We're so glad to get to do it again. And we're grateful to the work of all the editors uh, who helped make this possible. Uh, in particular, I want to thank Leah Schild, the previous editor-in-chief of the Mason Law Review, Timothy Schwartz, the uh, symposium editor, and now the new editor-in-chief and symposium editors, Jennifer Favre and Carly Vitting. I'd like to invite Carly up to the podium to say a word about the George Mason Law Review. Carly? Thank you, Professor White, and good afternoon and welcome to the Symposium on Administrative Law. Um, thank you to Professors White and Mascot the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State, our participants, and everyone whose hard work and patience made today possible. Uh, I'm thrilled we're able to be here in person today to hear our panelists. Um, as Professor White mentioned, if you haven't already checked out George Mason Law Review Volume 28-2, um, it's in the back of the room here, and we publish several great pieces that correlate with today's symposium and the 75th anniversary of the APA. Um, at Scalia Law, we are fortunate to have unrivaled academic centers like the Gray Center that give students opportunities to engage with and work with uh, leading legal scholars. It's an honor for Law Review to partner with various centers on campus to plan our symposia and publish thought-provoking articles. Uh, in addition to today's Administrative Law Symposium, this fall, George Mason Law Review will be participating with the will be partnering with the Liberty and Law Center um, for a symposium on, on will of the people. And in February, we will be partnering with the Global Antitrust Institute for the 25th annual Antitrust Symposium. Uh, so we hope to see you there. Um, thank you again for joining us today. And I'm pleased to pass it off to Professor White for our first panel. So we're going to begin with the conversation about the Congress of 1946. What did they intend when they first enacted the APA? You'll see in this uh, symposium issue a number of great papers, including the authors on this panel and a couple who couldn't join us today, uh, Professor Catherine Kovacs of Rutgers and Professor Joe Pastel of Hillsdale. I'll say a word about their papers, which are very, very interesting as well, um, after we hear from our initial speakers. And we're going to begin with Paul Verkeil. Paul is the former chairman of the Administrative Conference of the United States, uh, former president of William and Mary uh, University. Uh, and a leading figure in the last several decades of administrative law, including, as he mentions in his contribution to the symposium, uh, organizing, was it the 50th anniversary? Symposium? 40th? I hate to admit it, 40th. 40th. <laughs> um, his paper is a, a very interesting reflection on 
what we've learned since then. So let me turn it over to Paul Verkhoff. Okay. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I see so many old friends. Um, and thank you, Carly and, and Adam, for, for arranging this and working <coughs> so hard to get it done. So um, I have three points I'm going to make. One is, one is really, did we, the last time we looked at this, pick the wrong founding fathers of the APA, the Administrative Procedure Act? And two, um, is the APA overrated? And three, why does Roscoe Pound's name keep coming up? Now, as to the first point, back in the day, uh, I was actually chairman of the ABA Administrative Law Section in Williamsburg, Virginia, 1986, when we thought we would have a 40th anniversary celebration, and we invited, and I named them, the two founding fathers of administrative law, Walter Gellhorn and Ken, Ken Davis, Kenneth Culp Davis. And so they gave us a wonderful talk, and it's published in the Administrative Law Review, and you should read it because their exchange is, is very funny and, and, and um, worth, worth it. Uh, but then later I'm thinking to myself, well, um, these were certainly very important people. They have case books and treatises. Pierce, Dick Pierce has the successor to, um, to the uh, Ken Davis treatise, and, and we all taught Walter Gellhorn's book, I'm sure, at one point or other. Or like Ron, maybe we did our own, but we all learned from these people. So they were really dynamic and important in, in the administrative law world. Um, but when you look back on it, in 1941, the Attorney General's report, Atchison's report to the president, had a minority and a majority. The majority was written by um, as research director by Walter and, and Ken participated. And it said, no APA. We don't need it. it. Administrative process is too varied ever to be subjected to a, a generalizing principle. The minority, however, <coughs> said, yes, we could have one and let's try it. So, and that, by the way, was led by Carl McFarland, who was the ABA representative, having taken over for Roscoe Pound um, in the in two years earlier. And it's Carl who worked his way through the difficulties of uh, negotiating legislatively and actually got the APA passed unanimously without dissent, voice vote in 1946 after the war. So, Walter and Ken, who still don't believe in the APA a lot, get the credit as founding fathers, but it's really, I've decided, Carl McFarland, who, who ought to be the founding father. So that's my little contribution. I spell it out in a little more detail about who McFarland was. He, uh, became, he was from Montana. He president of the University of Montana. He won, was one of Frankfurter's um, minions. He got his SJD at Harvard in the 30s as well. A lot of people did, and they went to Washington, but he was a special type of guy. He ended up at University of Virginia Law School, where I could have taken him for um, administrative law and probably should have and learned a lot more than I might have. But Roy Shotland compelled me to, and Roy, the irrepressible Roy, who's no longer with us, um, was the one I went with. Um, so much for that. Okay, so let's say it for Carl McFarland. That's my first contribution. Now, what did McFarland do? He got rid of the concern about the Walter Logan Act, which had been passed 
earlier and vetoed by Roosevelt in 39 as being too, uh, too ju judicial and turning over the government to the district courts of D.C. Um, and I, and I, I know <laughs> we're going to hear much more about that in depth from Jeremy next. But so that was Carl's achievement. He, he found a middle road, really. Okay, now, is the APA overrated? When you talk to these people again and you read their comments, first of all, Ken Davis says, well, 90% of administrative law is in common law or constitutional law. The APA really doesn't have much to say about much of administrative law, and that, of course, that's true today. We, uh, Chevron itself is a is a function of administrative common law. It doesn't come from the APA. Um, and so there's a danger that we're making uh, this, it's called a super statute, it's called a constitution of the administrative state. Uh, is it, are we blowing it out of proportion? That, that's a real danger. And when I asked Walter that, he said, you know, I still don't like the APA, but I think it did do something. It created a mood, and he referred to Frankfurter's famous uh, uh, universal camera opinion where he said the Administrative Procedure Act created a mood. And more than that, uh, if you look at uh, Justice Jackson's opinion in Wang Yang's son, he's saying it settled these controversies, this controversy between the Walter Logan crowd and the APA crowd. And so that's function. It's brought these contending forces to settle, made it super. And justifies, perhaps, I end up concluding myself, maybe justifies the fact that we do have a statute of singular importance. And the fact of judicial review itself, this 702, we, we do know the standards, the standards um, of substantial evidence, and the whole list of uh, arbitrary and capricious, all the things we talk about all the time were brought to us and brought, and brought the courts in for that purpose. So let's give it credit on that score. Um, but I, I have to think in this audience that inviting, calling uh, Ken and Walter um, founding fathers would, would be like, uh, and not Carl, would, would be like uh, calling George Mason an anti-federalist, the founding father of the Constitution, and not James Madison. Well, we could have both. <laughs> well, he, Madison's up the road in, in Harrisburg. Uh, Harrisburg. Okay. So, why Roscoe Pound? This is the... Um, well, many of you probably don't know about Pound. He's one of the great legal figures of the 20th century. He lived until 93. He wrote and published. He's the, maybe the most published academic in the 20th century. Dean of the Harvard Law School for 20 years and um, a grand figure in the law, fa uh, father of sociological jurisprudence, etc. But something stuck in his craw about Roosevelt and the administrative state. And um, it really led him to down this path of administrative absolutism and his denigrating of the entire administrative process. Um, for Walter and Ken, at least, uh, Walter calls them historical stirrings of Roscoe Pound. And that's 
needless to say, I'm probably more pejorative than was called for, but it's in the it's in the book. Um, still, Pound is a great figure in law, and so I'm thinking when Jackson said the fight is over, that really that and everything has come to a rest. That really that Pound's role, having been eclipsed by uh, McFarlane, was over. Um, but it turns out that's not the case. Um, today, just uh, Roscoe Pound has been more than, I wouldn't say rehabilitated, because it's probably not fair to him, but um, um, Joe Postel and others, the Liberty Fund, he's the inspiration for much of the legal thinking that's going on now, revising the way we approach the administrative state. And it's his commitment that um, is being restored. Um, Philip Hamburger, who I debated on this subject, is has his own uh, NGO and, and uses Pound as an inspiration. So it's very current. Hamburger and I debated uh, uh, real clear politics. Um, it, it was a fast, uh, so you could look it up, but it's an interesting debate. And by the way, I have to say one more thing about debating uh, people. Um, the one debate I wish we could have was um, hamburger versus frankfurter. Yeah. Mm. Just think we could talk about the merits of ketchup or mustard. Frankfurter's just ducking. <laughs> He's ducking it. Clearly, clearly. Well, um, but he was part of <laughs> a lot lot to do. I, I want to think, Kathy Sharkey wrote a nice piece, which I've, I've cited, about why Pound's influence is so strong today. And, and she put, attributes it to his belief in the tort system and to the common law. And what we're getting now, is, and this is something you've probably seen, uh, certainly Sunstein and Vermeule's Law and Leviathan is all about the, restoring the common law and the fact that we only got it right back in England you know, when, the, when Lord Coke and the common law judges took the stewards <clears throat> to task. And, and that's part of the theme that goes on. Uh, so I, I'm not going to add to that anymore. I think I've probably used up my time, have I? Do you have anything else to say? Um, it, I'm going to say what I could say, but I, I think I've covered virtually everything. I got my two, I thought, funny lines out. Maybe they weren't. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. <laughs> Next, we're going to hear from Jeremy Rabkin. Jeremy is a professor of law at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. Uh, he's a leading figure, of course, in the constitutional law, the law of nations, uh, the law of uh, all the laws surrounding foreign policy. But he also has been a scholar for many years on administrative law and the administrative state. Jeremy Rabkin. Thank you. Um, this word narrative is overused, but there really is a narrative here. There's a received opinion, which everybody right or left cites back to. And you heard a little of it still in Paul Verkal's, uh presentation, which is in 1939, people in Congress enacted the Walter Logan Bill. And that was an attempt to judicialize the administrative process. And it was rigid and excessive. Um, Noel Francisco last year, I guess it's now a year before, uh, gave this presentation at the Justice Department. I was a Trump appointee to be Solicitor General. 
pretty much Federalist Society favorite. And his sense of this was, oh, yeah, the Walter Logan bill, that was highly restrictive. And in context, he was saying excessively restrictive on administrative agencies. President Roosevelt vetoed that in 1940 and said, let's wait for this committee, the Attorney General's Committee on Administrative Procedure. And sure enough, uh, as a result, this is what Noel Francisco said, as a result of the Attorney General's Committee, so the Justice Department contribution, we came to rest that's the Jackson idea, too, contending sides, and it all comes to rest in the APA, which is a reasonable compromise. And almost everybody, right and left, seems to accept this narrative. And it is, I think, almost completely wrong. It is certainly very, very misleading. And the thing that is, like, if it's just in front of your face, if you go look it up, uh, Walter Logan was actually pretty modest. It didn't demand much at all in the way of procedure. Uh, the APA is more demanding in most respects. So it's just not true that we started with something extreme and then we moved to something modest. Well, why does everyone remember it this way? And I think the reason is um, there are like two stories that people who are paying attention to this, which is admittedly not a broad cross-section of the country, but let's say a cross-section of administrative law scholars, they think, ah, this is the view of the, let's call them the um, self-promoted founding fathers, um, Walter Gellhorn and Ken Davis. Uh, the Walter Logan people, they were really cranks. Fortunately, the Attorney General's committee exposed them to reality, and then we were able to reach this compromise because it's really good to engage with reality in a scientific study as we did. So if you look at it that way, that, oh, yeah, the study of all these agencies which the Attorney General's committee undertook, that, that changed the debate because the debate had previously been too ideological and dogmatic, then it makes sense. And that's why you remember it that way. The other alternative was, oh, uh, this was all politics, predominantly politics. People who hated Franklin Roosevelt, hated the New Deal, were using the Walter Logan bill as a way of strangling the New Deal. And then they were defeated. But later on, we were willing to accept a more moderate version. Like, hey, how come it was unanimous? How come President Truman just signed it? So the answer has to be, oh, it was really different. Uh, it was a little different, but it was mostly more um, ambitious. So I just want to set this up for the following conclusion. I think, really, the debate in the 1930s was very much about the rule of law. And therefore, Roscoe Pound, I believe, was very much um, a figure in this, an important figure in this. And it was wrong to dismiss him as a crank. Uh, and if once you accept that, then a whole lot of things that otherwise seem really discordant um, kind of make sense, such as the fact that, on the one hand, people like Carl McFarland, who, let me just say, um, it's not your original insight. I wanted to check, like, what had he done in the Justice Department? He was a Roosevelt appointee in the Justice Department in the early 30s. Uh, the land division, public lands, which I think that made Montana. you, it was Montana, but it also makes you think like, yes or no, are we authorized to do this? Do we own it? Do we have the lease? It's, it, I think it was probably much more oriented towards common law issues. Um, 
But anyway, uh, so what I did was like a brief Google search, and the University of Virginia Law School has a little blurb of like famous former faculty member in which they say, principal draftsman of the APA. I don't know if that's literally true, but I assume it didn't get onto the UVA Law School website without his approval at some point. So he thought he was. He could have been. But anyway, I mean, he was a New Dealer. And um, he went into partnership with, he became a law partner with Homer Cummings, Roosevelt's first attorney general. So, I mean, he was not a right-wing crank. And he's the person who said, like, let's do this. And as Paul mentioned, he was on that attorney general's committee and pushes a lot of things which you might say were rule of law concerns. He was in the minority. Um, So, like, oh, yeah, that could be, right? He wasn't hostile to the New Deal. He wasn't trying to stop the New Deal. Uh, Emanuel Seller, congressman from Brooklyn, was uh, chairman of the Judiciary Committee. He voted for Walter Logan. He thought he passed it through his committee. He thought, like, this is okay. It's just not true that if you were a New Dealer, you had to be against this. This is not true. What's more telling is the people on the left said, uh, this is really bad because you're going to cripple the agencies. And they're pretty explicit. But what they mean by cripple the agencies is... The investigator ought to be able to say that you're guilty because the investigator knows the relevant facts. I mean, it was a rather, I think, extreme view on the left. And I wanted to read this great statement from President Roosevelt's veto of Walter Logan. A large part of the legal profession has never reconciled itself to the existence of the administrative tribunal. Many of them prefer the stately ritual of the courts in which lawyers play all of the speaking parts. Many of the lawyers still prefer to distinguish precedent into juggle leading cases. In other words, you're making administrative tribunals as if they were like the rule of law and precedents matter and lawyers should be involved. That's a very extreme position. And I think as late as 1940, President Roosevelt thought, yes, I have to defend this. And six years later, even though the APA is much more ambitious, President Truman is like, okay, fine, I can't say no to this because we, you know, the world has moved on. Um, so I just want to say in conclusion, it's like good <clears throat> to get the history correct because it's, you learn more if you knew the correct history and not the kind of, convenient narrative. But it's also, I think, valuable for for this really fundamental reason. They were having a serious debate in the 1930s about what the rule of law requires, and it never goes away. I think the claim that, well, it's all settled, and now we agree on the compromise, um, no, not really, not so much, which is why Roscoe Pound is with us. And I just mentioned, which I think is to the point, uh, this whole debate that we've had over the last however many years it is, five, six, seven, eight, uh, about Title IX tribunals. And that is all fundamentally about, is the rule of law something real, which is important and protects people who are on the side of being accused and trying to defend themselves? Or is it whatever you want it to be? And I think the, the amount of controversy that we've had over these Title IX proceedings, which don't give really any elements of due process, a reminder, oh yeah, Roscoe Pound, Eternally relevant. <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy. Our next speaker is Michael Grieva. Michael is also a professor of law at the George Mason University Antonin Scalia Law School, a, uh, a scholar of both uh, administrative law but also constitutionalism and federalism, author of The Upside Down Constitution. Before he starts, I just want to say a couple of years ago we hosted an event here in this, in this room on a paper he was just then beginning on the question of creating a, uh, a new set of administrative courts. 
Uh, here he is now. The paper has been written. Mike, this might be the first time that a, a single project has gotten not one but two Gray Center conferences. So welcome back. And I'm deeply grateful. Uh, I won't repeat what I said earlier about these kinds of things, uh, except for this um, observation. In the post-COVID world, uh, Dick Pierce has come on board with that project, um, not on my account, but on independent grounds. Um, either way, we're making progress here. Uh, what I'll do instead is uh, sort of say a few words on Paul's and Jeremy's very informative uh, and instructive essays, and then I'll speculate a little bit about why the appellate um, review model, uh, which is enshrined in the APA, um, why that has become so firmly entrenched, um, despite all the obvious uh, constitutional and rule of law objections that one might articulate. By the time of the APA, the shouting was basically over and all the other alternatives were effectively off the table. So my first point, uh, by way of uh, comment, I have no objections, um, not even a serious comment um, uh, to, to Paul's and Jeremy's uh, essays, just a footnote, and it's really more of a question than anything else. Between the Walter Logan Act and the APA lies the experience with the wartime, two dozen wartime um, agencies Kathy's paper mentioned this briefly. Um, neither of you gave that much play. And it's just a, uh, I mean, my genuine question is, is why not? I mean, the biggest of these agencies, and here's why I suggest this might matter. The biggest of these agencies was the Office of Price Administration, OPA, which set um, prices for over 90% of everything that was bought and sold in the country produced a large number of important Supreme Court cases, right? So Testa versus Cat, that was an OPA case. Um, the horror show in Yakis versus United States, that's an OPA case. Seminole Rock, for that matter, was an OPA case. And the agency, OPA, was a monument to the New Deal at virtually boundless discretion to set prices at any level. The administrator, by the way, was a genuine executive official, not an independent agency thought, saw fit, minimal, really minimal agency procedures. Review could be had only in an emergency court of appeals here in D.C. that was stacked with New Deal fanatics, uh, Calvin Magruder and his colleagues and his gang. Um, under a statute, the Emergency Price Control Act, um, that court exercised exceedingly deferential review and OPA could even... Uh, evade that review by supplementing the record during the proceedings um, or by simply telling the court, uh, mm, uh, we'll, we'll think of something else that actually upholds these orders or, or is, is evidence to su sustain these orders. Nobody ever won in that court um, at all. All the while, the orders remained in effect and the act made. Um, meanwhile, federal and state courts available for civil and criminal enforcement proceedings, and it added a judicial review preclusion provision. Courts could not question the validity of an OP or OPA order, even by way of criminal defense. All of that was sustained in Yakis, which was decided in 1943. The modern Supreme Court has been sufficiently embarrassed by that decision to treat Yakis as a wartime exception and the EPCA as a wartime statute. That was not 
the view, emphatically not the view of the New Dealers who wrote that statute, Benjamin Ginsburg, um, Professor Nathanson, for that matter, is was also not Ken Davis's position after the war. They thought that this is what, what I've just described, that that is what administrative law ought to look like. So in the aftermath of Yarkas, Congress amended the statute, the EPCA, in ways that in some ways parallel the APA, and you can read big pieces of the APA as sort of a response to the uh, uh, EPCA or OPA uh, experience, right? Administrative procedures, on the record review as it stands, and on and on and on. So my simple question is, I mean, how much does that matter? Um, I don't know whether that cuts for or against Jeremy's view that the APA wasn't this partisan war over the New Deal so much as an attempt to sort of harmonize rule of law values with administration. I can read the OPA record as as I were the narrative or the story uh, either way. Uh, but I suggest that if the APA meant to safeguard the rule of law and forestall administrative absolutism, it was an arousing success because during the Nixon administration, Congress effectively reenacted EPCA. This was the um, Economic Stabilization Act. And, the, and, and a court here in D.C. in a decision called Amalgamated Meat Cutters sustained that scheme against delegation and other challenges substantially on the authority of Yarkas. And so in true spirit, Judge Leventhal uh, celebrated courts as partners with administrative agencies, collaborative instruments of justice, not as a check on the executive, but as a sort of kind of repair shop for the executive state or the administrative state. So I'm less than sanguine about um, the APA's redeeming rule of law qualities. That gets me quickly to my second point. Um, so to repeat, the APA uh, enshrines our well-known appellate law review model, right? So, uh, or appellate review model, I should say. So the agency gets to make the initial adjudication, and then the reviewing court just reviews it, much as an appellate court would review uh, jury determinations, the reviews on the record, and as highly deferential, especially with respect to questions of fact. And because that is so, there have to be all these agency proceedings, mi minimal fairness, certain protections for ALJs, and so forth. The obvious concern is that the functional separation of powers is, or of, of operations within agencies probably no real substitute for an actual institutional separation of powers, at least not so long as the hearing examiner's decisions are reviewable by the agency head, as they usually are. Surely, that ought to strike a rule of law, law note, and Jeremy, or court, court and Jeremy uh, alluded to that. And it's not that the appellate review model doesn't have alternatives now or didn't have them then, one alternative is what Tom Merrill in a very important article about the origins of the system um, uh, called the Marvory or Altavirus model of uh, review of agency action, full-scale review with respect to Altavirus question, uh, so long as there's a form of action in law equity and none with respect to the reasonableness of agency action. As Tom notes, most common law countries, uh, Canada, England, um, Australia, uh, developed administrative law on that basis, and we alone are the ones who migrated to uh, appellate review. Another option would have been to commit agency adjudication in the first instance to administrative, uh, to independent tribunals, not necessarily Article Three courts. And in pockets of public law, um, versions of that model were in fact 
adopted, right? So the Court of Customs and Patent Appeals created in 1909, reformed and broadened in 1929, abolished only in 1982 in the misnamed Federal Courts Improvement Act. That's one example, right? And in the 1930s, there were proposals presented by the APA um, to scale that model up. Sorry, uh, Gary, I see the notes. Adam, can I have four more minutes? Please. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Right. So obviously that didn't take. Why um, didn't it take? Um, so Tom's Tom Merrill's story is that the uh, that the appellate review model um, sort of originated in the fight over the uh, ICC um, from it, not not by legislation but by judicial improvisation. It then spread to the FTC and other agencies. And by the supposed by the time of the supposedly foundational Cole versus Benson. Um, decision, that model was so firmly entrenched that all the justices in that case just treated it as a given. I think that story is basically right. Um, I'll add two thoughts pertaining to the debates that immediately preceded the APA. Here is one. Once you insist on a, or if you insist on an institutional separation of powers, not just a functional division of labor within the agency, okay, you have to have a pretty good idea of what agencies can do on their own, and what really has to be an independent courts. In other words, you need a clear idea or relatively clear idea of what's a private right, subjective public right, as German lawyers say, that belongs in courts and never in agency, and what can safely be left to agencies. And the truth is that stateside, uh, everybody at the time already was notoriously and hopelessly confused about that question. The distinction wasn't really a problem for complicated reasons in the 19th century, but by the 1930s, that was over. You could say, of course, that what private rights are meant to protect and so what really belongs in an independent court um, is protection against coercive interferences with life, liberty, or property. Okay, but the ABA was never quite clear about that. And, I mean, I'm willing to say that still. Jeremy is still willing to say that. But by that's the ghost of Lochner rattling. And by 1938, the Supreme Court itself had thrown the towel in on that one. And so um, that's one reason why this um, uh, wasn't a real option. Here's my second and final thought. He insists on institutional separation of powers. He strengthen the case for executive presidential control over agencies, right? You catch a trace of that dynamic in Humphrey's executor. I mean, as Dick Pierce has noted on, on some other occasion, I mean, to the extent that that spiteful decision makes any sense at all, it's because much of what the FTC did at the time looked pretty judgy. And so at least in a functional sense, it makes sense to sort of say, oh, let's keep the president at bay. Um but once you separate the functions institutionally, is strictly policymaking. FTC really has to be under presidential control. That logic was obvious to most combatants at the time, and it was not just the AP, ABA. Uh, the Brownlow Committee's report in 1937, most famous for its recommendations to centralize the administrative state, unify it under the president. The president needs help. But one of the underlying studies for that for the committee was written by Robert Cushman of Cornell fame, who later wrote an important book on the Independent Regulatory Commission, also taught Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, he fretted over the headless fourth branch of government, proposed to put independent uh, commissions, all of them, mostly for the most part, 
in suitable executive departments to make their officers subject to all of them, uh, subject to presidential supervision direction and removal. And now it comes to transport all of the administrative functions into independent, uh, an independent judicial body. It's not totally clear to me what kind of a court he had in mind, but he made it crystal clear that the judges have to have protection uh, against removal, and moreover, that they cannot be reversed by any administrative agency, only by an Article Three court. That proposal was actually adopted by the Brown Law Committee, and actually, and FDR endorsed it. And a few years later, the Minority Report to the AG's report still championed review of agency action by an independent administrative tribunal or specialized court. Nothing came of it, I think. Um, Partly because independent judicial adjudication goes together with unitary presidential control. Um, and um, uh, at the time, Congress had good reasons to be nervous about that. All the more so because even, I mean, five or six weeks after the Brownwood Committee report in January uh, 1937, the president unleashed his fabulous co- uh, court packing plan. Um, and uh, that really made people nervous. So most of the Brownwood Committee reports died in Congress. And so we ended up with this improvised appellate review model and the entire law, administrative law debate since then has, you know, revolved around sort of ancillary questions. Do you want a little more procedure or less procedure, a little more review or less review? I'm not sure I would dignify that corpus juris with the word law. I mean, to me, much of it is sort of law in the same way in which L.A. law is law. Uh, so I'm not terribly fond of it, but it is what it is. Thank you, Adam. Thanks, Mike. Mike, I really wonder what you would have done if I would have just told you no and stopped you right then. <laughs> we'll never know. Uh, our last speaker on this panel is Chris Walker. Chris is a professor of law at The Ohio State University. Uh, he has been a leading scholar in recent years studying practical reality of administration, looking at how courts and administrators actually go about their work and studying uh, the numbers of it all, but also writing on how we might understand some of the doctrinal uh, debates that are happening at the time, in our own time. His paper is titled The Lost World of the Administrative Procedure Act. Chris? Awesome. Well, it's great to be here. Um, it's always great to be invited to a birthday party. Uh, especially one at my first in-person party since the pandemic. So it's really fun to be here. So I thank Adam and the Gray Center and the George Mason Law Review for, for inviting me. Um, this is today is the 75th anniversary or birthday of the Administrative Procedure Act. It was enacted today, um, 75 years ago. Uh, and if we were having a birthday party of someone that old, we might have like a slideshow, right? That shows all the changes, all the kind of the, the key moments of their lives. Um, and when it comes to the Administrative Procedure Act, if you look at the text of the statute, it actually has, hasn't changed much. Um, Westlaw tells us it's been amended 16 times over those 75 years. I think they're missing two or three minor amendments. But the major ones are introducing the Freedom of Information Act and then the Sunshine and Government Act. But otherwise, it's, it's relatively unchanged as a textual matter. Now, as the title of my piece suggests, if you just read the text, you'll commit malpractice if you're an administrative lawyer, right? I mean, the text really doesn't tell us what the Administrative Procedure Act commands. And, and one of the developments on the law school side since Paul 
organized the 40th anniversary of the Administrative Procedure Act is the rise of a first-year required course legislation and regulation. Uh, and I just want to kind of talk about that a little bit, uh, it, because what ultimately my, con- my richer contribution to this symposium is somewhat of a love letter or a comfort letter to my students in legislation and regulation about how to make sense of the act. So this is a, a relatively new class. For the last couple of decades, it's emerged. Uh, I think at least 40 law schools require it in the first year curriculum. In the first half of the class, when I teach it, we focus on statutory interpretation. Uh, and an introduction to the legislative process, right? And, and the basic kind of bottom line there is that we're all textualists now. <clears throat> uh, now, we might use different tools, but we start with the text of a statute. Uh, there are great debates in the class about extrinsic evidence like legislative history or statutory history or other uh, types of, uh, of evidence that could help us understand the purpose. But the students are really ingrained during that first half of the semester, and this is the text of the statute and the text of statute controls. In the second half of the uh, of of the class, you know, legislation. Now we're in the regulation part. Um, they get an introduction to the regulatory state and to administrative law, <laughs> and at that point, they meet the Administrative Procedure Act. And I have to say, I've taught this class for almost a decade now, and students are so frustrated when they get to the Administrative Procedure Act because the text of the statute just doesn't tell us much at all about how courts have interpreted the statute and applied it, or how regulatory practice works outside of it. And so in this essay, I just do kind of a literature review or an annotation of the APA to mention all the different points uh, in the statute uh, that, that really, where the text really, di- you know, diverges from, from reality. Um, I, I want to kind of just say at the outset, that, and I'm not going to go through all the examples because you've got it in the back there, but this isn't a, it, it, I don't engage with Dynamic statutory interpretation that Bill Eskridge ushered in, you know, three decades ago. I, I don't engage with Peter Strauss and Julie Metzger and others who argue that the APA was a foundation statute and that we should, courts were charged to interpret it differently than the text. Uh, and I also don't engage in an originalist project in this paper, at least. I, it's a textualist project. So I'm not trying to figure out when the APA was enacted, um, were they codifying backdrop common law principles or not? I think that's a really important inquiry. It's too much work to do during a pandemic. So I kind of put that to one side. But one kind of classic debate there is in 706 of the APA, Congress commands agents or courts to review all, decide all questions of law, right? And, and so there's a robust debate now going on. Well, where do we get Chevron deference and our deference and things like that? And, and my answer in the essay is just, they're not in the text. And so as a student in legislation regulation, you've got to grapple with that. Of course, Aditya Banzai and Cass Sunstein and many others have done much more of the hard work to kind of say, well, were they backdrop principles? So we'll kind of leave that to one side. But for those of you that when we, when we teach this in class, you know, you first start out with a few sections on administrative process. You know, APA is divided into kind of two large sections in my mind. One is what can agencies do? What are the default rules of the road for agencies? And the second is, how do courts review those agency actions? Uh, and in that first part, the rulemaking section is just completely blows the students away. You know, you read the rulemaking section, you find out that if an agency has to hold a hearing and have a record, you have to go through formal rulemaking. There's a trial in front of the agency, and the students get all excited about that, right? Uh, it turns out that, as you all know, in the room in Florida East Coast Railway, the Supreme Court said, ah, never mind. <laughs> Like, you only have to do that if it has these express words on the record after agency hearing, 
Turns out there are very few statutes that do that. If you want to read more about this, go read Aaron Nilsson's In Defense of Formal Rulemaking, where he kind of is probably the only scholar that's out there that's defending it uh, in, in the law review. Um, lots of us defend it on other grounds. So what do we have left? Well, if you read the APA, it's really easy. Informal rulemaking requires a general notice. All you have to do is say general notice. I'm going to regulate air, right? You have to allow for public comment. Um, and when you're done, you have to provide a concise journal statement of basis of fact of why you adopted the rule you did. Now, we all know there's a lot of regulatory practitioners in here. That's not how notice and comment rulemaking works, right? Uh, that general notice is anything but general. It's detailed under the Portland Cement Doctrine. You have to actually, the agency has to, has to make public um, uh, all the data underlying their proposed <laughs> rule. The proposed rule has to go into a lot of detail about what it's doing. Uh, and then, of course, the final rule has a preamble that's anything but short and concise, uh, very extensive. Uh, and in fact, if it's not extensive, it's going to get overruled on, on judicial review. So when we walk through this, it, it, it's shocking to students to read a text of a statute after they spent the whole first semester uh, uh, thinking that the text controls and finding out that it's not. Now, I want to pause here in the article and in real life. I'm not against almost all of these innovations as a matter of policy. I mean, of course, I want an agency to tell us what they're doing in detail and to provide the, the expert data-driven analysis they did. Uh, you know, of course, I want an agency to have to start rulemaking again if the rule is not a logical outgrowth of the prior rule. And in the final rule, I really want to know that they heard and listened to and responded to my significant comments I filed on behalf of a client or on behalf of myself, right? So these are good, in my mind, procedural innovations to make administrative governments work better, most of them, at least the ones I just mentioned. Um, but they're not in the APA. Uh, and so this is just a chance to kind of walk through that. If I wanted to, I think Mike's already given us an entree on adjudication. My bottom line on adjudication today is that the vast, vast majority of agency adjudication, the APA doesn't even, says nothing about. Uh, formal adjudication under the APA is when you have an administrative law judge. Um, there are 1,900 administrative law judges in the United States, or 2,000. 1,900 of them are Social Security administrative law judges. We can have a debate whether they're actually doing formal adjudication. There are over 10,000 other agency adjudicators that hold hearings, millions of hearings a year, whether we're talking about immigration judges or patent examiners uh, and the like. And, and the APA just tells us nothing about that. Uh, and so that's kind of where we're at. I think I'll, I, if I went on to, actually, I'm going to spend, I'm going to take the Mike Greva um, exception here. My, Adam will probably shut me down because I, I don't hit as hard as Mike. But um, I, on the judicial review front, I just want to flag already talked about Chevron. On the remedies front, there are some really important debates going on right now that my students love. One is the APA says that the court has to set aside an agency action. What does that mean? Uh, well, it actually means they don't have to set aside an agency action. There's a doctrine called remand without vacature that allows them to remand without setting aside the agency action. And that's interesting and fascinating. Might be a good policy development or not. We can debate that. And then the last one, of course, is one that you all are familiar with is the nationwide injunction, right? Uh, when uh, the Administrative Procedure Act says set aside an agency action, which could include a rule, does that mean they set aside it just for the parties or does that mean they set it aside entirely? I think I'm in the camp that they set aside entirely, which probably will make me not invited to more uh, events, but but it's not entirely clear. So that's another debate that we're having right now. So, uh, and then and then I'll just end with the grand finale of since we've got uh, Sally Katzen and Susan Dudley here. There's this whole world of White House review of um, 
of agency actions that the APA, the original APA says nothing about, and today we still don't have anything. It's just something that a president has created and, and does on their own with very little uh, impact, influence from at least the Administrative Procedure Act, the text that we have today. So I'll just stop there. Thanks, Chris. Uh, before we go on any further with, uh, with my questions and the audience's questions, I do want to give uh, our speakers a chance to, to react. But while they're thinking about what they're going to say, I do want to just say a word about the two papers that were written by authors who couldn't join us today. Uh, because they're two really interesting papers, and I'd encourage you to take a look at those uh, since you won't hear much about them in the conversation. One was by Catherine Kovacs of Rutgers. Her paper was titled um, Avoiding Authoritarianism and the APA. And she looks back, much like Professor Rapkin a moment ago, she looks back at not just the war years, but the 1930s and so on, the debates in the country and around the world about the nature of governance and the rule of law. And she really tries to map the APA onto those debates and think through how we might better understand the APA by better understanding the intellectual and legal debates that were the, 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 the world fought a war over at the time. The other paper is also fascinating. It's by Joe Postel of Hillsdale College. Uh, he actually looks at the 1946 Congress's other significant sort of structural legislation. It was the Legislative Reorganization Act. He recounts what Congress accomplished, what it tried to accomplish uh, in that bill, how that bill, like the APA, was informed by academic debates um, giving rise to its enactment. And then he thinks through what succeeded and what failed. But I think what's most interesting might be at the end, where he tries to think through more broadly, and I want to return to this later, thinking more broadly about what was the 1946 Congress trying to accomplish overall with respect to constitutional government, and how what might we better understand the APA against the backdrop of, of that, and I might add, I suppose, the other laws of the time, the National Security Act of, well, Jeremy would know this, was it 1947? or. Um, all these other laws. And so Professor Postel's paper really is an interesting, broader look at the legislative moment beyond the APA to help us better understand the APA. All right, hopefully uh, my little filibuster there gave everybody a chance to think about what they want to say. I mean, we'll just go in the same order. Uh, Paul, do you have any reactions to what's been said so far? Um, yes, let me just say um, to Jeremy uh, that the attempt, I think, really to make Walter Logan look like a version of the APA uh, is wrong in one or two serious respects. There was a real difference. Walter Logan was premised on the district courts in the District of Columbia having the power, not de novo review. There was, you had to have deferential, substantial evidence, arbitrary and capricious, the 706 things. But it's a district court. And we all know how district judges treat deference with disdain. Now, that's one key difference. The other difference is that Walter Logan provided for review of rules instantly in the district courts of D.C., which means pre-enforcement review, but how, the possibility to stymie or to stop rulemaking in its tracks. So we didn't get any close to pre-enforcement review until Abbott Labs in the, in the 1970s. So I just want to keep those two points, and they worth, they're worthy distinctions. The other um, issue is I don't mind going back to trial-type hearings in administrative cases, but I don't like excluding 
the cases that really matter. You talk about life law and property. What about asylum cases? What about all the tough cases? We're, we're just talking here about someone who's affected by the SEC or the FTC. Um, and if you're willing to go all the way um, about with trial-type hearings and get rid of immigration judges or reform them, then I'm, I'll listen. Jeremy? So, um, I mean, this to be uh, like back and forth on Walter Logan. Um, I take your point. It's a good point. I should really have given that more attention. I think the reason why I kind of skated past that is twofold. The, the less important one first is they do, they were aware that this was a little ambitious. And so they do put in all these restrictions, like the initial review of new rules is solely on the jurisdictional question. It's like the ultra-virus jurisdiction. It's nothing to do with the substance. And they seem to regard that, in Walter Logan, they seem to regard that, right, this 1939 measure of the sponsored by the, in effect, by the ABA and people heeding Roscoe Pound. Uh, so they tried to hedge that so that it wouldn't be too disruptive. Um, but the other thing is, if you read Roosevelt's veto message, he doesn't say, oh, I'm really concerned about judicial review. What he says he's concerned about is, you're going to require the agencies to have internal administrative proceedings that are too like law-like, because you're going to have lawyers involved, and then you're going to be citing precedents. So his vision of like what the agencies should be is a dynamic policy shop, which just comes up with a result, and then courts are supposed to say, well, like, you're the experts, all right, good luck. And I think his actual view was, you know, I'll stay with this long enough, I'll appoint enough judges. I won't really have to worry about judicial review, but I don't want the agencies constrained. Um, so I think it is still substantially correct that we, we have a wildly exaggerated idea of how... Um, restrictive uh, Walter Logan was, certainly in regard to agency practice. And that wasn't what most of the debate was about. So it's, uh, you know, strange. Um, I agreed with a lot of what um, Mike said. Uh, if it was hard for you to follow, he's packing a lot. I mean, he's been thinking about this for years, and it's kind of complicated. It's maybe hard to follow at the first eight-minute or even 12-minute um, presentation. Um, but let me just respond to the what happened during World War II. Um, a lot of things. Um, you don't say. <laughs> Take all the time you need. Yeah, who's oversimplifying now? Uh, it's absolutely right that the OPA was extremely controversial, and I once had a student look at, uh, like, what were the, you know, just like go through um, major news sources from the period, like for the year before the APA was enacted. And the student came back and said, and then brought me little excerpts to see for myself, uh, there was very little uh, news coverage of the APA. It had ceased to be a big controversial thing in 1945. What there was a lot of coverage of was the OPA. And the reason there was a lot of coverage of it is that most regulatory agencies set up a dispute between, you know, the regulated company and the agency and the public doesn't have to know about it. Everyone was like totally fixated on price control and rationing. 
And even if it was not directly regulating the consumers, it was regulating something that the consumers felt immediately. And there were signs in the butcher shop saying, sorry, by OPA order. I mean, the, 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 the um, retailers were very anxious to say, if you're angry, scream at the government, which people did. So it's certainly true that um, there's public rage about this, and that is probably important if you want to talk about a mood. There is a mood of distrust that gets built up during the war and is, I think, really palpable and important. Uh, the Republican slogan in the 1946 elections, which is uh, three months after the um, enactment of the APA, is had enough. And had enough meant like had enough with rationing. And these were called the beefsteak elections in 1946. People were really angry about this. Now, of course, that doesn't go to any particular thing about administrative procedure, but I think it does go to the premise of Roosevelt's veto of Walter Logan, I mean, to go back to 1940, which is these people are experts, don't crowd them. Don't constrain them. And by 1946, people don't want to hear about our expert uh, you know, federal regulators are. I mean, that's just... <laughs> so, yes, I think that is in a general way important. Uh, I'm not sure that you could say more about any particular provision in the APA by invoking that. I mean, it's not that people said, damn it, we need more of a hearing. That would be, that would be the cure for this, right? They wanted an enturation. And I'll just say one other thing that, I mean, I hadn't quite got this in focus before, but it's like a really interesting fact about America. Um, we end this in 1946. And we just say, okay, everyone hates it. It's not doing any good. Never mind. Okay, we're done. Uh, it continued in Britain until 1952. Longer. Yeah, so, I mean, but the Churchill government was promising to undo it. But it's amazing how, you know, they were much more patient. And I think part of their patience has something to do with they saw more benefit to it because people were eating during the war. I, I don't mean this at all as a sarcastic remark. I mean, like rationing meant something different in wartime Britain than it did in wartime America. It was annoying in wartime America. It was life-saving for a lot of people. Yes? Mike? Um, I don't have any... Uh, I mean, the, the, I'd love to respond to... Paul's remark about immigration cases and asylum and deportation cases. I have my views about it, but that would be an interminable debate very far from what we're uh, debating. I, I'll say one more thing about uh, the road from Walter Logan uh, to the APA. If you look at uh, the debates about the Walter Logan bill, um, they added exception after exception after exception with respect to agencies. Even the FTC would have been exempt. So that by the end of that legislative process, the only thing that was really still covered was what people cared about, the NLRB and the SEC. So let's go to town. And the APA is very significantly different in all those respects, right? Even the patent office which probably had one of the better claims to saying, no, we're not just some regulatory, I mean, we're not just some routine agency. And we go back to 1938, I mean, 1838, um, and we have our own court review, review court and mechanisms and so forth. Even that was included under the APA. So, um, I, I, 
I don't know which way that cuts, what it proves. I just think it's sort of one important background fact to remember. Could I have two little things? Two little things. Very, very little. Yes, this is totally right, what you're saying about Walter Logan. And I think what, you have to remind yourself, this was passed by people who were Roosevelt Democrats, who still controlled Congress in 1940. It was not by people saying, I hate the New Deal and I hate Roosevelt and what can I do to sabotage it? And they kept trying to accommodate objections from New Dealers. They're like, okay, we'll, we'll take this. Okay, we'll do this. Okay, we'll do this. But that's interesting, right? This is right. not like, this was not the Trump wave of 1940. This, 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 this was like uh, moderate Democrats like Bill Clinton saying, like, I could realize it. And I did want to say this to um, Chris so that he won't feel neglected. But I mean, it's also, this is like, I, I learned something, you know, going through these older things. Um, in the Attorney General's Committee, the minority report, which is Carl McFarland, says uh, we need to give more guidance to courts. We need to say more. And we should have a prologue to the whole code, which says like what we think the rule of law is about. And we should also um, say like what judicial review is for. And they, they didn't just say, like, someone should do this. They wrote out a model, and they give you example. You know, they say, like, this would be, like, a good model for this. And I do not know why the APA dropped this, or if you believe the story that Carl McFarland himself personally was the draftsman of the APA, why, having written this out in 1940 or 41, he decided in 1946, ah, never mind, press delete, but my guess is uh, it's one thing if you're the minority saying, like, yeah, this would be good. And if you're trying to get something through Congress, you think, ah, oh, no, that could provoke some people who might. Right? They, 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 they were, like, on a roll, and they didn't want to do controversial things. So the, the APA is missing <coughs> things that people had talked about, very much talked about. And, and it's possible even as late as 1946, some of these things were understood as, like, you would know if you knew it was kind of you know, life experience of the people who are involved in this and so assumed as background understanding, maybe. Chris, anything else you want to throw in? Um, sure. I mean, because I'm kind of the tack onto this panel. I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm not, my, my piece doesn't quite fit the history, but, but I feel like I'm living a little bit of history right now. Reading your pieces, I, I'm, I'm on the home stretch is chairing the ABA's administrative law section. It's really historic. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and we're, we're struggling a lot with what Paul mentioned of, you know, as a council, as, as a section of what do we do with agency adjudication? And I just have to say, there aren't easy solutions. <sighs> uh, you know, like if there were, I, you know, I'd, I'd have a piece coming out of the Harvard Law Review that, you know, outlines it, right? But, but there are so many different tensions when it comes to agency adjudication between Judicial independence or adjudicator independence and political control and trade-offs, especially in like the immigration context where you have mass adjudication uh, between judicial independence and kind of systemic consistency, interdecisional consistency. I, I just have to say, I, I don't think it's an easy, it's an easy question. I think Mike's case is that you're dealing with private rights. At least we're talking about a couple dozen administrative law judges. And if, you know, but I do think when you get in the mass adjudication context in particular, it, it's tough. Uh, and we've, we've struggled a lot as a section, uh, either supporting or not supporting different resolutions from agency adjudicator bodies that want to change things. And we could have a whole other panel just yeah. on immigration adjudication we, reform. It has to be reformed. 
Uh, I mean, the inconsistencies in the process are shocking, but it, I don't know how. Like, I'm not sure what the best path forward is. So. Well, let me frame a question in those terms. It's one of the things I wanted to ask about. Um, obviously, this is a, an important issue, and it's not just immigration, right? You see this also in veterans' benefits. We, Our friend James Ridgway is here. We co-sponsored an entire conference here a couple of years ago on the handling of of, of veterans' cases. Um, and then there's also Social Security, obviously, is a huge high-volume adjudication issue. What does the development of those issues today, of, of high-volume adju- adjudication and agency adjudication today, how should we think about that in light of what Congress tried to do 75 years ago? And have we just misunderstood sort of the, the role of adjudication in the APA? We tend to focus so much, at least when I teach and I think when others teach, we love to go to rulemaking and focus on rulemaking. Maybe it's just more familiar as part of White House oversight. Maybe, and I guess Emily Bremer is doing a lot of work on these on this right now, maybe adjudication was much, much more important in the APA uh, than we give it credit for today, and maybe it ought to, be, it ought to deserve uh, more attention now. Paul, you were going to say something? Well, I... I, I'd love to, but I think we better open it up. And if you're going, are you going to open it up? I am going. We have a, I, we have a little time. Oh, okay. Well, then I will just <laughs> forgive me. If you don't want to answer the question, no, no, no. Okay. I, I really think Chris is right. This is the hardest question about adjudication. From my perspective, I would take the all the administrative law judges who are doing social security disability and move them over to do some of these immigration cases and asylum and the tough ones, the deportation cases and things like that, because there you have high-quality adjudication. And I believe in Jerry Michaud's idea that maybe by management we could handle better some of the mass adjudication benefits cases, benefits cases like veterans as well, where what you're trying to do is get to the right answer. No one is saying that the adjudicator is in any sense biased. It may be occurrences, but it's generally get the money to the right people. Then management makes more sense. So that's it. Anyone else? Can I just jump in on that? I mean, so I I think on immigration in particular, I mean, the the immigration courts decide over 600,000 cases a year, and it, it does ebb and flow. And, you know, I think there are now, I mean, Trump appointed, I think, 250 immigration judges. I mean, like, we talk a lot about the Article 3 judges. You know, they, but like it, it's a massive system, and, and there, are, you know, the APA has formally recommended to make them an Article One court. I, I have my misgivings about that, especially when you now see you all. Now really won't be invited anymore. Especially because you see all the disparities in immigration that you don't see in other mass adjudication systems, and if you move them outside of that, I, I think it's problematic. Uh, Mike, in his paper, hints to another solution, which is to make it more like a true adjunct of a court, uh, or at least closer to a truer adjunct of a court. What? Maybe we just don't give deference, right? At least deference to legal questions or to mixed questions of law and fact. Uh, you know, there, there are other things we can do short of that. But I do think this is, you know, the immigration courts. And I'll just end on this, like, students are gravitory, gravitating towards administrative law these days. And it's because of immigration for a lot of them. Uh, over the last eight years, they run into immigration. Uh, on the news with the, what Obama did and then what, with what Trump did and I'm assuming what Biden will do now. And they gravitate to this. I'm interested in administrative law because I'm interested in immigration. And I really do think that's and different. I will tell you as the converse of this, that when I started teaching at Mason in 2007, people were like really interested in international law because they're like, oh, they're all these wars. Are they legal? Are they not legal? And 
as interest in administrative law goes up, interest in international law goes down. Because of whatever, I mean, foreigners are gesticulating. Well, never mind. Right? We're totally focused on what we are doing. So just to, well, go ahead, Mike. No, just it's it's just one sentence. I mean, if if anybody wants to pursue this, to my mind, uh, what to do about. Um, <clears throat> Uh, immigration cases, asylum cases, deportation cases, um, is really difficult, not so much because it's mass adjudication. I mean, the volume, as you said, fluctuates, um, <clears throat> but because it's, to my mind, a genuine due process rule of law problem. I do not believe that that is true of bona fide Benefits cases, Social Security, veterans' benefits. There, I'm perfectly willing to say that, look, the process is whatever Congress offers you, and that's the end of that. There may be better ways of handling it. The bitter and it. the sweet. Huh? The bitter and the sweet, right? The, the bitter with the sweet. Um, right? I mean, there may be better ways as a managerial matter to run those systems, and there may be worse ways. But to my mind, that's not even remotely a rule of law problem of the kind that I obsess over or have been obsessing over the for, for the past four years. I'll just note, in addition to the debates we now have over mass adjudication, at the same time, there's real questions about mass comments and rulemaking, right? The Administrative Conference of the United States is is considering a recommendation on how to handle computer-generated or mass comments, and it's just very, very interesting to see both of these issues um, being presented at the same time. I have other questions, and maybe I'll get to one more of them later, but we really want to hear questions from the audience. And so there are microphones in the room. If you'd like to ask a question, just raise your hand, and we'll call on you. Just give a, a moment for the microphone to make its way over. Um, when you, these, now, just so everybody knows, in case you didn't notice the cameras in the back, this is being recorded. So this is all on the record. Um, when you ask your question, please take off your mask so we can hear you and, and identify yourself. The first question will be here in the middle in the second row, Carly. And are there any other questions so far? And then the second one will be in the back. Oops. Hello? Okay. Um, so I wonder if there is kind of another way of looking at the APA as the APA was more intended to provide process in cases where sovereign immunity would apply and you really couldn't sue the government. And so it gave a way of kind of having more uh, control or at least influence on the agencies in these cases where rule of law problems really don't apply because if the APA wasn't there, you know, you couldn't go to court to do this because uh, it would, sovereign immunity would block you. And if you view it in that way, I wonder if the, uh, the kind of judicial doctrines that Professor Walker was talking about that were created kind of extra textually, if those could be kind of cabined to those situations where sovereign immunity would otherwise apply, you could then separate things like immigration from um, other kinds of benefit cases or things like that. Chris, maybe do you want to start? Yeah, I mean, a couple, couple of reactions. One, I mean, just to be clear, as I tell my students that the APA sets the default rules, right? I mean, like immigration's largely controlled by the Immigration Nationality Act and all the standards and all the procedures. I mean, it's just, so, so I, want, but I just want to put this aside. But the second point on this, I mean, so one of what I call one of the big four amendments to the APA was Scalia's bargain uh, uh, to the waiver of sovereign immunity amendments. And and I, if, if you, I, I don't have like a direct answer on this front, but I do think that complicates your story a little bit. Uh, and 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 Katie Kovacs has got a great 
short article on that. On, I think she calls it Scalia's bargain, where she kind of walks through how that changes the APA or not. But I, I do think you got to kind of grapple with that. I mean, that's my only like reaction. I don't know if others have reactions, but that, that that's you know, well, it is part of the statute today. Paul, I, I think it's an interesting point. It, there was no waiver of sovereign immunity at the time of the APA. In um, Section seven hundred two, waves of you five USC, I think waves. Sovereign immunity for non in non monetary circumstances, and I should a little shout out sixty nine uh, recommendations sixty nine one of the uh, Ministry of Commerce recommendations is what suggested uh, that we ought to waive sovereign immunity. So that during the time it was good, but look up sixty nine one. So that was during Scalia's time as chairman. But, but, I mean, an agency that tries to coerce you, you could always right. sue the officials involved. I mean, right. It's not like we had a reign of terror. But, but you had to have this the fiction of the, fish, the official. The official had nothing to do with it. No, no, but it, it's not true that sovereign immunity oh, stopped you from No, no you're, right, you're right. You're right. Well, thank you for that. The next question is in the back row, and the question after that will be right in front of him. Jeremy. Uh, Katie's our question. Jeremy from UVA. Um, this isn't a law professor question. It's a political scientist question. So maybe I direct that as to Professor Rapkin. Um, I don't know how to reconcile two timelines here. Um, the explosion of the administrative state um, in you know, the last, I don't know, five or so decades, um, we all know that that's often framed in terms of Congress's seeding of its powers. And many people are content to explain that in terms of structural changes in politics in the second half or maybe a bit more of the post-war period that Changes in the media, changes in how finance campaigns are financed, changes in um, how members of Congress sort of see their own reelection and advancement furthered and so on. And it made them want to supposedly be responsible for fewer regulatory state matters. They didn't want those powers, in effect. So when I went back to read your excavation of the original debates before all of those changes in the political world, I expected to see a lot more ferocious jealousy over congressional power. And I'm not. I'm not sure I did. So if I, I misunderstand, if hindsight is leading me to misunderstand how they thought about delegation, set me straight. But if that's right, then what else is this early history going to have to make us rethink? Hmm. Uh, that, that's a good question. Um, and I think it is important to remind yourself that administrative procedure, which if you have to teach a course called Administrative Law is like right there in the front row. I mean, that's like the main thing, the APA and all that. Uh, but that doesn't seem to have been like the thing that Congress was most exercised about. And I think the main impetus for this in 1939 was the American Bar Association kept saying, we should do this. I mean, we should really, really do this. Let's do something like this. And uh, the congressional reaction just from reading about it seems to have been like, oh, uh, yeah, okay, yeah. I don't think they took it that this would prevent Congress from inter interfering on the side. I mean, I think part of what Mike Grieva's presentation was about is uh, the Congress did not actually want to have too much administrative process that was too politically insulated because they thought, well, like, are you saying it's going to be managed by the president? I mean, that the rest of it managed by the president? Well, who's he? I mean, what about us? I mean, I think they assumed that 
There would be a lot of ways that they would pressure the agencies, which they regularly did exercise, but just outside the purview of the ABA. I don't know who you hired to get to your congressman. Maybe you had to do it yourself. Like, go to the congressman and say, this is really important. You know, I just remind you, we are a coal district, C-O-A-L. And um, I think it's actually possible that um, Logan is from, if I recall this, from Pennsylvania, and is actually interested in coal. And there's several New Deal agencies which have regulatory jurisdiction there. I think he assumed he was going to do this on his own, and people would tell him what to do, and not that... He would fix it through administrative process, but it's a good good point that you're raising. Just say one very quick thing. I mean, should everyone should like remember like, oh, there was a big expansion, of course, under Franklin Roosevelt. Uh, there had been an important expansion in you know over the pre preceding twenty years. I mean, this was a thing that was happening in the twentieth century. I don't think it turns on ah, but once Congress did this or that, I think. Congress was very open to this in the 20th century under a lot of different arrangements of how Congress, you know, made a bill into a law and so on. They were a little more attentive to, uh, I guess, a lot more to. The president would present them with a proposal and they would tinker with it. And it's unusual in the 1970s to have so much congressional independence in developing new laws. I wouldn't say they did better work when they did it on their own. But I mean, just one note on this before the next question. Uh, Real quick. Yeah, uh, it, 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 real quick. Um, uh, it, the only thing, I haven't fully thought this through, but I'm totally convinced that sort of the forms of administrative law, the way it looks, the way, you know, it's organized and set up has a great deal to do with the delegation problem and the separation of powers. So, uh, here's one example, the Tom Merrill article, uh, that I mentioned earlier. He notes that all the other common law countries sort of built on the ultra-virus model and didn't go to this appellate review model. Now, you ask yourself, why is that? Well, maybe it's sheer contingency. You know, they, they didn't have quite the same railroad problems. They, they nationalized them, and so maybe that made a difference. But you can also speculate, and this is just speculation, that, look, those are all parliamentary countries, okay? In that context, it's very easy to say, full-scale, de- I mean, ultra-virus review in courts, Anything else is for the minister who is in all events accountable in and by and to parliament. It's much, much harder for Congress to say that, right? Because it's not so easy to hold the president to come under control. It is interesting in Joe Postel's paper, reorganizing the legislature, focusing on how to compete with the executive branch, how to match the executive branch. He, he sort of raises the point that it's not clear whether they want to compete with the executive on oversight or on producing legislation, right? And that's a big, big difference. We have maybe two more questions. We'll take, take them both so that both questions get asked. Uh, James Ridgway and then Sally Kansen. Ooh. Hi, uh, James Ridgway, currently in private practice, formerly of the Department of Veterans Affairs. And I wanted to get to that question you were talking about, about the problem of adjudication and how do you come up with something that works. And I wonder if the history has anything to inform us. Uh, My perspective, having been an official within a VA and an an adjudicator and also a policy chief, is that at least within the world of veterans, you have a real big problem that there's different types of adjudications. There's what happened to this individual person, 
Like, what's the legislative facts that inform the policy? And how did the agency decide what the policy is? And the courts, at least in that area, throw the administrative law cases around as if all those three things are the same thing. Uh, one of the big things that jumps to mind is Chenery. So Chenery is a case where the facts of the Supreme Court are completely uncontested and the adjudication is about what is the policy. And then yet in my world, it's used all the time as a site when the policy and the, and the law is completely uncontested. And the question is, what are the facts of this individual person's case? And it just feels like there's a disconnect there and that the courts are using it to say to one part of the agency, oh, you're doing it wrong when the piece that Chenery cares about is handled by a completely different part of the agency that has a different relationship with the courts and a different relationship with the White House. But is there a way to kind of break down adjudication into sort of the different things? Because some agencies are all about individual fact-finding, immigration, veterans, social security, but other agencies are all about the legislative high-level policy work. And, you know, is that a way to move forward and say, maybe not one model of adjudication, but let's talk, let's think about maybe three different models, depending on what's the big uh, deal in a particular place. I suspect this is the sort of issue that will come up also in the next panel with uh, Dick Pierce and Aaron Nielsen's papers. But Can I respond Chris, just real quick? Go ahead. So, um, Matt Wiener and I just did a, a study for the Administrative Conference of the United States on, a, on appellate models of, of, of review, <laughs> and we go into this a lot. Uh, it's definitely uh, not to like self-recommend, but it, it's worth kind of thinking through because different agencies have different objectives too, right? Some are more policy-driven. Different agency adjudication systems have different objectives. Some have a policy component. Others really are just error correction. Others are, you know, looking at, at more systemic issues. And so I, I do think it's really important that we tease out and, and disaggregate agency adjudication based on what the system is intended to do. That reports on, on ACUS's website, right? I mean, looking back to the 46th Congress, to reframe the question one more time, is this, are these distinctions that were just lost on them at the time that hadn't occurred to them, these issues hadn't, arise, hadn't arisen yet, or are these things that they just sort of moved past? I, I don't expect you guys to be that in-depth on the, on, the on legislative the, record, but I'm just curious. On the know. objectives, I think they just move past. I mean, the, the model is, Mike's right, it's an appellate moderate review that allows the agency head to set policy, right? Yeah. But in the 75 years since, Congress and agencies themselves, through regulation, have created different objectives and have kind of, you know, tailored the adjudication of their particular, you know, organic statute and regulatory scheme. So I think I think that's what makes it complicated. And, and the APA hasn't been revisited to kind of rethink that. The, the background fact here is, uh, if you go back to 1940, this this is what Walter Gellhorn is pushing. Right, which is that a lot of different agencies, they're doing really different things. They need to have their own procedure because you just can't have one size fits all for all these very different agencies. And when they're saying procedure, they actually mean like what kind of, I mean, like how judicial it's supposed to be, right? And, and whether you should have somebody who is in, an entirely independent hearing examiner or whatever that is that they had a fancier name for. Um, and I guess the, the enactment of the APA was sort of a repudiation of that view that each agency is so different that you can't have a common standard. It's at least a, as a default. If it's not made clear in the statute, there's a common standard. And I, I guess for what my opinion is worth, which isn't very much because I don't feel like I have enough direct experience of many different agencies, but I think it's dangerous to say 
every agency is different because it's like saying uh, every university is different. We couldn't possibly have a standard about admissions, you know, because each one has different criteria. This is a way of mystifying and then removing it from any kind of accountability. And come on the other side, it's helpful to say, here's a model of how we think this is supposed to be. And even if you don't apply it in exactly the same way, I think that that sort of bolsters the people who want to say, wait, this is not a process. This is not fair. Eh? To have it out there in a big public way, which is what the APA was trying to do. Last question will be Sally Katzen. I agree. Exactly. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. And I have a couple of reactions to what has been said. I find it interesting that those looking at the APA who are more in the textualist school have spent so much time on what I would call the legislative history or the background to try to understand what was being accomplished. And that's an irony which I would like to just share with you. Second is I wanted to pick up on something that Chris Walker was talking about um, and that Jeremy just was addressing the multiplicity and the diversity of the agencies. And um, I'm, I guess what I would suggest is, uh, and I think, Jeremy, you said that the APA was a repudiation. No. I would argue it was a confirmation of the multiplicity and diversity. That seeing the very different kinds of agency processes in place. It tried to set, what Chris called earlier, a default, the, the lowest common denominator. Here's, here's what is at a minimum required from everybody. But no, we are not going to try to micromanage the whole process with a single statute because it would be impossible because of the differences. So I think it confirmed rather than repudiated uh, the state of affairs. And, and I, too, teach LRS, uh, uh, the first year their course, and the students are sort of crazed when they've gone through statutory construction and then read the APA and see that the statute doesn't say anything about any of the issues that anybody cares about ever. Um, and this is where I resort back to, um, I guess, a critique of textualism, that it doesn't, statutes do not answer all the questions. And what we've seen is a partnership between the agencies and the courts in developing the rule of law, which I think Michael and Jeremy uh, cherish, um, those aspects of what does it mean to have notice? What does it mean to have meaningful comment? What is the obligation of the agency in describing its final reason and basis? Those all came from the courts. They did not come from the language of the statute. And so I think you do have the rule of law imposed on an otherwise minimalist statute. But gosh, I'm well past my 75th, and I wish somebody would have told me on my 75th that I did well. <laughs> and I think the APA has done well 
You, you, you did well in the question. <laughs> and I, there's hardly any of it that I disagree with. I just wanted to clarify so that you didn't go away offended uh, or weren't taking offense on behalf of the APA. I think, I think if Walter Gellhorn could have had his way, and you can actually, this is known from uh, some memos and things, there wouldn't have been an APA. And that what he thought he was doing was demonstrating, oh, the agencies are so different that you can't, this is not a right. And when he gave in to that, he was saying like, okay, we can have it, as you said, lowest common denominator, and then we can work out exceptions. But, it, but, but his initial reaction was to say, you, you, you people who are talking about the rule of law don't understand how complicated this is because the agencies are so different. And that's a plausible point. I mean, it's not, simply wrong. I mean, there's a lot to it. Um, I think it's kind of interesting that it didn't prevail. And I think it's particularly interesting that it didn't prevail even at a time when there were a lot of people saying, yes, let's have a lot of regulatory agencies. Let's have a lot of agencies. Let's vote for more spending. But let's do something to reassure people, right? So th there was that debate and that that kind of effort to, to, to balance these considerations uh, long before what people now associate with the right as like hostility to government, right? That, that was the main point I wanted to make. Anyone else? Mike? Paul? If we'd had, we're out of time. If we'd had more time, I would have asked one more question and, uh, I'll make, I'll pose it and those be a rhetorical question. It's the point I raised. I have a little a couple of pages at the beginning of the volume introduced in the papers. And reading the history of the APA, I was struck by the Senate uh, sponsor of the bill, McCarran. He said after the APA passed, that was an effort to, to re, reinforce the tripartite system of government. And I saw that and I was struck by that because it seems to me the APA does a lot of things, but mostly what it does is take a lot of administration and make it look like the courts work and take a lot of administration and make it look like the legislature's work and rulemaking. Um, very little of it looks like the classic conception of execution, right? Federalist 70 stuff, secrecy, uh, uh, swiftness, energy. I mean, the APA strikes me in many, many ways as the antithesis of that conception of executive power, but maybe for good reasons. It's a rhetorical question. No, Jeremy. no, no, but I, I, I just want to, I just want to say, I, if that's, I, I totally get that. That's really right. And you, we all have to remind ourselves that a lot of water had flowed under the bridge by the time people were sitting down to try and pass the APA. And it was really way too late for them to say, let's go back to first principles, right? Well, on that note, well, we'll bring this one to a close. Thank you. Uh, please join me in thanking the panelists. <laughs>